Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we present the first of a special two-part interview with the award-winning and best-selling author, Candice Millard. Her latest book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. It was published in May 2022 by Doubleday. Candice Millard was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell. So we're here today with Candace, who is a biographer who specializes in not just writing about people who are in exotic places, but as part of the research, goes to those places as well. You're from Ohio and Missouri, landlocked smack dab. I don't think you've ever been more than 30 miles from the exact geographic center of the United (laughs) States of America. Is that part of the reason you were drawn to these exotic stories? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, Yes, I grew up in Ohio, and then I ended up in Kansas City uh, right before my senior year of high school. I did live in Washington, D.C. for about six years when I was with National Geographic, but I'm definitely a Midwesterner through and through. I think what influenced me most of all was just loving to read my parents read, my sisters read. We had a little hometown library we spent every weekend in. And um, I think it was adventure through stories, you know, adventure through books. And, you know, growing up, we took one vacation a year and that was driving to Florida. So I, <laughs> I had never been overseas until I was in college. So I love to read about it and think about it. But it wasn't until I finished my graduate degree and I thought, what do I really want to do? And it was work for National Geographic. That was my dream. And it was because of the world. When you open National Geographic, you feel like you're sort of tumbling into another place and sometimes another time. And I loved that feeling. And you had a hard time getting there. You were first in a very competitive test, if I remember correctly. Right. And uh, and what did you learn once you got there about the importance of place to a story? Well, first of all, what I learned about writing is that it's a meritocracy. And that's one of the things that I love about it the most. And so the fact that I was from a place that no one had heard of, this little town in Ohio, it didn't matter. It didn't keep me from getting a job that I really coveted. And it didn't matter the place I went to college, right? None of those things mattered. It's with writing, it's can you write or can you not? And that's really the beauty of it. It's a very American sort of um, job to have. And then once I got into the magazine and I was mostly an editor and then became a writer, place was going out on an assignment, right? That's what everybody dreamed of because most of us were, you know, growing up, I was sort of bound geographically, right? And away from the ocean, land bound. But at National Geographic, most of us were bound to Washington, D.C., right? We were stuck in that building. And we all, almost all of us dreamed of going out into the world and telling the stories that we found there. And so 
it took me a while. Even once I was at National Geographic, I was an editor or I ghost wrote for people who got to go on these adventures. And it wasn't until I finally got my own adventure through National Geographic. And when I got to go to Ethiopia, that's when I finally felt like a real writer. And what was the story in Ethiopia? It was about the kingdom of Aksum, which was a fourth century Christian kingdom in um, what is today northern Ethiopia, surrounded by Islam. And at the center of the story, uh, it's a fascinating story, but the center of it is the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ethiopians claim to have in um, modern day Aksum. And Aksum, it's a very difficult place. It's been at war with Eritrea for a long, long time. It's faced famine. It's faced extreme poverty. But the people there are really just extraordinary people and incredibly welcoming. And it was just a fascinating place to be. And in the middle of Aksum, they have this small, beautiful building um, where they claim to keep the Ark of the Covenant, which did disappear a long time ago. Nobody knows where it is, you know, said to hold the Ten Commandments. And they choose one man to be the keeper of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, he's a monk. And um, when I was there, it was Abe Makonan. And when he's chosen for this really great honor, but also very, very difficult job, there's a, a fence around this building. He enters this compound and he doesn't leave for the rest of his life. And nobody else can see the Ark of the Covenant. And when I was there, I asked to speak to him and it took several days, but they arranged it. And I went to this fence and I'll never forget, I could hear him coming. He was a small man. He was barefoot, but he was carrying this huge gold scepter. And he blessed me through the bars of this fence. And I asked him, I said, why can't anyone see the Ark of the Covenant? And he said, who can look on the face of God? <laughs> and so it's just this incredible moment in my life. And I remember thinking, how did I get so lucky that I'm here, that this is my job to meet someone like this and, and try to tell this story. So um, yeah, well, it, it was, it was really a remarkable experience for me. So it's a real Indiana Jones uh, moment. <laughs> well, exactly. So what were some of the other foreign assignments you had for National Geographic? Well, so I was mostly there. I did tell smaller stories. I, I wrote about these people in Mongolia who still use eagles to hunt with. Um, I wrote about rock art in Peru, like ancient rock art in Peru. Mostly I was an editor and I would beg and beg and beg <laughs> for an assignment. But I think like most places, they want the kind of sexy, exciting freelance writers. And when you're there and you've been there forever and they just see you in the halls every day, that's not so exciting, right? And so it, it took a lot to get an assignment if you were just an editor on staff. And so that's one of the reasons I was really excited to start doing my own thing. And somewhere along the line, you met and fell in love with a foreign correspondent. That's right. Yeah. So I actually met him in Kansas City before I moved <laughs> to Washington, D.C. He had been working for the New York Times. He was their bureau chief in Managua. He covered all of Central America in the late 80s, early 90s. So obviously a really interesting, uh, difficult time. 
And he had decided he wanted to go to law school and start his own company. And he had grown up in Wichita. So he went back to Kansas City. And that's where I met him before I went to DC. But yeah, so we, we dated long distance for six years. <laughs> and then when we got married, we went on our honeymoon and we came back and we parted ways in Detroit. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a really unromantic ending for a honeymoon. But I went back to DC because I had a job that I loved and I like Kansas City a lot, but I didn't know what I could do here that I would love as much. And I had worked really hard for my job in uh, DC. And he's the one who's like, why didn't you write a book? And I had no idea how to write a book, but I was having lunch with a friend of mine named James Chase, who had written a book called 1912, which was about the election of 1912. And he said, have you ever heard about this trip that Roosevelt took down an unmapped river in the Amazon? And I'll never forget, he opened a biography because most biographies, you know, at that time would have maybe, you know, a few paragraphs, a few pages about this. Since it was after Theodore Roosevelt's active political career, there wasn't really that much attention on it. But he said, and the river is called the river of doubt. There's your title. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a real gift. So I started doing some research and I was like, oh my God, this is an incredible story. And I can talk about all the things that I've been steeped in all these years, you know, at National Geographic, I can talk about natural history. I can talk about the Amazon. So that's where it started. And now most of us listen to David McCullough talk about actually tracing the path that Harry Truman took through the Capitol to the mm -hmm. White House after he learned that Franklin Roosevelt had died or listening about Robert Carroll camping out in the uh, hill country of Texas to get the idea of what isolation meant. Um, was this a lesson that you learned from other people or did you just immediately say, I've got to go there? I did immediately say I've got to go there, but I'm sure I was influenced by those stories. Absolutely. And, and of course, influenced by being at National Geographic because National Geographic, part of it is being there, right? You, you never just tell a story by doing research in your office. You always go there. Now, the old system, the old National Geographic, when it started, it was a time when not many people traveled, right? And so the writer was always part of the story. It was always first person. And because it was exciting, because these were places that you would never be able to go to on your own. And so you were really living vicariously through these writers. Over time, and as more people began to travel to all these places, it switched and we started to get away from the first person. And I always felt very strongly, A, that yes, I wanted to go there if I could, but also B, I wanted to stay out of the story myself. So three of your four books take place on uh, foreign soil, um, Teddy Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Sir Richard Burton. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you travel the entire journey down the River of Doubt across South Africa from Zanzibar to the headwaters of the Nile? In every case, did you actually follow them step by step on their entire journey? Um, that would be pretty much impossible to do with the River of Doubt just because it it's so remote. I mean, people think about going to the Amazon, they think of going to Manaus or someplace like that. The River of Doubt is deep, deep, deep into the Amazon rainforest. And so it's very difficult to reach. And, it, you know, people have tried to redo this trip that Roosevelt took, but it takes a year or more of planning. It's incredibly expensive. You have to have a whole group of people. It's a whole expedition, really, uh -huh. even today. 
what I did is I did a lot of archival research uh, first in Rio and Sao Paulo. And then I went to Porto Velho, which is this little town in Western Brazil. And I rented a plane and I hired a pilot. And I flew for hours over completely unbroken jungle from horizon to horizon to reach this river. And there's a little place, most of it is in protected um, Cinta Larga territory. That's the name of the native tribe? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it's, it, it means wide belts. And it's in reference to these strips of bark that they would wear around their abdomens to protect themselves during war. So the Cinta Larga still live there. And in theory, you can get approval from them to land there, but it's really, really difficult. And I talked to the New York Times correspondent there, and he said he had been trying for years and you have to go through all these hoops and it just doesn't happen. So, but I was able to find a little fishing village, which um, was on general Brazilian government territory. And this guy who started this little, it's like a little fishing camp for like extreme fishermen. I mean, the piranhas are giant. They're just huge that you can get there because um, again, it's so remote. And the guy who started it, he literally brought in a hammer and some nails and the rest of it he took from the rainforest and he built these little huts. Um, it's very primitive, but very, very beautiful. And it was a perfect sort of base camp for me. So I stayed there and then from there, I was on the river itself. And Rondon, who was Roosevelt's co-commander, you know, was so careful about mapping this journey that I had all the coordinates. And so with today's technology, I had a GPS so I could see where all these things happened that I had been reading about. And did you eventually meet up with some of the uh, tribal people? I did. And that was the most difficult, but the most interesting part of the story for me of doing the research. So if you read any other account of this trip before my book, it would just say, oh, you know, and they were shadowed by and at one point attacked by some quote unquote Indians. So the question was, A, who were these people? And B, why didn't they just massacre Roosevelt and his men? Because they certainly could have, and they had every reason to, you know, they weren't invited. They could, they're obviously a potential threat. They had also a lot of supplies that the Cinta Larga could have used. Um, So I started actually at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. I worked with their anthropologist there for South America. He believed and he showed me all his reasons why it was a Cinta Larga. And then I went to Brazil and I talked to this guy named Sidney Paulo, who's the sort of modern day Rondon. And his job was to go in to the Amazon and find these groups of people, some of whom still have had no contact with the outside world and know where they are, but not make contact with them. But he agreed there's a Cinta Larga. And so um, I was able to find a little town called Corto Velho, which has an outpost for medical um, aid for some of the people who live in the Amazon and the Cinta Larga were known to go there. And it took me a while, but um, I was able to find some of them. And I spent a whole day, they speak Tupimonde. So I had a translator who spoke Portuguese and some of the Cinta Larga also spoke Portuguese. So it was, you know, this went going from English to Portuguese to Tupimonde and back, but it was fascinating. And it filled in so many holes in the story for me. This is a huge commitment. It's a commitment of time and and money. When you got back and you were sitting in front of your keyboard or, or typewriter um, or yellow legal pad and pen, what was it about being in there that allowed you to make your story so evocative? Could you have done it just by imagination or did you did you have to 
see it? And what was it you took away from seeing it that translated itself to the page? I mean, I think it probably could be done. And I think there are people certainly who do, certainly people who, for instance, would write a cradle to grave biography of Roosevelt. There's so much that they have to cover. They probably don't have time for such a, as you say, a difficult trip that takes a lot of time, even in the planning and, um, and it is expensive. But since my story was narrow, it was really important to the story to be there. And to me, one of the most important things, like I said, A, would be meeting the Santa Larga and answering all these questions that I had. Um, but also B, another big question I had when I began this was, okay, so you have Theodore Roosevelt. He's known for being this hunter, right? And Rondon, who spent most of his life in the Amazon. Rondon is the Brazilian- uh, Co-commander, sorry. Yeah, co-commander. yeah Candida Rondon, the Brazilian co-commander who would put a telegraph line through the Amazon and he knew it very, very well. And you're, you have the richest ecosystem on earth. So why are they starving? Which they were, they were starving to death. And it's just really, really difficult to understand until you go there. And again, this is deep, deep, deep in the Amazon. And you understand right away because it's absolutely silent. I mean, you yourself are being eaten alive, right? You're being eaten by every conceivable insect, but anything you can eat, good luck finding it. You know, you, you see a few caiman and again, would be happy to eat you disappearing into the river. You see some monkeys way, way, way up in the canopy, but it's extremely, extremely difficult to even see them, much less kill them. To me, at least, I did not understand that until I was there. And you really make the reader understand that when we read the book, because our vision of the Amazon is, you know, Tarzan of the jungle yeah. <laughs> with lots of zebras and elephants running around everywhere. And you really make it seem like a very alien environment. And you understand how somebody could starve to death. I was going to ask you to save all the uh, adventure stories up for the end, but I think I'll just slip one in here. This is dangerous. Uh, dangerous. And you had a, uh, a dangerous uh, moment when you were flying over these endless jungles. I did, right. Even today, I remember when I was at National Geographic, there was a group that went into the Amazon with a scientist and he was bitten by a poisonous snake and they tried to get help, but they couldn't get help in time and he died. And so these things happen again and again. And when I was there, as I said, I had rented a plane and I had hired a pilot and um, he was a pretty young, um, not particularly experienced pilot. And we spent a day in a village, a rubber tapping village. And, you know, this is the Amazon, so it's the rainforest. There's a lot of rain. There's a lot of moisture in the air at all times. We're even there during the rainy season, as Roosevelt and his men had been. And so when we got back to the plane, he didn't um, sump the tank, let out the extra moisture in the tank. And so we started flying. This is a single engine plane. We're in the middle of literally nowhere and um, maybe about 1500 feet up, the engine went out, the water got into the engine and it went out and we started to drop like a stone. And I remember thinking, if we crash, I hope we die immediately because no one will find us. And it was just an incredible thing. I mean, this pilot was literally sort of clawing at the controls and miraculously, he was able to restart the engine <laughs> as we were falling, which my husband's a helicopter pilot. And he was like, that's really rare to be able 
to do, but he pulled it off. But the problem was that he was sort of terrified after that. And he just wanted to land. And I had, you know, spent all my money spent all, you know, this is my first, I'm like, we have to keep going. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're afraid. I'm afraid too, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> and that listeners is called commitment. Uh, <laughs> so you get home, what do you, do you take pictures and then line your office with these pictures? Do you have notes? Uh, do you have a diary and journal entries that you refer to for a, bi a young biographer, especially starting out? What tools do you use to translate the experience to the page? All of the above. So yeah, I take as many pictures as I can. I keep notes. Um, I interview people while I was there, you know, all my interview notes with the Cinta Larger, for instance. And it's changed because I've been doing this for 20 years. How I do the archival research and what I bring home has changed in a really good way simply because of the invention of the iPhone. So it used to be that even if I were going to DC, say to work in the um, presidential papers, a lot of things, understandably and rightly so, you can't photocopy even yourself, right? For instance, Kermit Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's son was on this trip. He kept a beautiful journal. It was this leather bound Let's of London journal and they have it at the Library of Congress, but you know they're not going to let you cram that down on, <laughs> on mm. a photocopy, right? And so you have to ask them to do it. They have people to do it, and it takes weeks and weeks to get it. And there's some things that they just won't let you copy, and you just have to, I would just have to kind of handwrite. But now I've not experienced anybody who says I can't take a picture with my phone. And also, I don't have to live in fear of losing it, you know? So I get home. I'm a very tactile person, so I do print it out. And I annotate it and I highlight it and I keep it in a physical drawer um, and I organize it um, with hanging files and things. But I still I always have the digital copy as well. If anything happens to it, I can just print out another copy. OK, the second book that you wrote was Destiny of the Republic. And we're going to skip over that because it didn't require a lot of travel. <laughs> but the next person you choose is another of the great romantic figures of history, Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. And uh, his story as a young man in the Boer Wars in South Africa, he's in a prisoner of war camp. He escapes right. and makes his way single handedly uh, <laughs> with no food, no map. Uh, did he have shoes um, all the way across <laughs> South Africa? Did you go to South Africa? Uh, has modern South Africa covered up the buildings and the paths that he traveled on the battlefields in which he was captured? Or was there still enough there that you were able to, again, take away from this feeling of place and transfer it to the page? I did go to South Africa and happily everything is still there. You know, we've forgotten about the Boer War in our country. And I think it's not remembered much even in uh, the United Kingdom. But in South Africa, you can still see all these battlefields and everything where these wars took place. And even Churchill's story itself you can absolutely follow it. So I went to where he was captured and taken as a prisoner of war. I went to the place where he was kept as a prisoner of war in Pretoria. Before the war, it was a school, and then they made it this POW camp for officers, and now it's a public library. So it's really bizarre. <laughs> I mean, you feel like you're sort of weaving in and out of time because you go in and people are just you know browsing for books, and then you walk into this room where Winston Churchill had been kept as a POW and there's a hatch in the floor and you can lift it up and stand it when that's where they thought about tunneling their way out to escape. 
and another room on the wall. So these men, again, this was an officer's prison and all of these guys were highly trained cartographers and they allowed them for some reason to make a map of South Africa on the wall, kind of charting the course of the war. And that's still there. It's just kind of covered in plexiglass. And after he escaped on his own, he didn't have a map, food, a weapon. He didn't speak the language. The Boers were enraged and searching for him. They're humiliated. If they find him, they're probably going to kill him. He's 25 years old and completely on his own and scared. And along the way, he hides, he uh, miraculously, because the, the Boers had forced all the Englishmen out of the country, but they let a few stay to keep these collieries running. And he just this unbelievable stroke of luck knocked on the door of the one Englishman for hundreds of miles <laughs> who hid him in a coal mine shaft for three days with these white rats. <laughs> and the colliery is gone, but that shaft is still there. And this is another important reason for going to the place you're trying to write about if you can, because you meet these people who know so much. Like there's a guy there I met, John Bird, who ran, he was a manager of a colliery for many years and was obsessed with the story about Winston Churchill. And he lived there. And so for decades, he had carefully figured out, okay, this is where he jumped off the train. And you see that little grouping of trees? That's where he must have hidden because there's a little pond right here. And because he's hiding during the day and at night, he tries to get to some water, right? And he also could explain to me, because I thought, okay, he's hiding in this coal mine shaft. It must have been really dark and tight down there. And he was like, actually, it's pretty wide, the passages down there, because they bring ponies down there, these poor ponies. They would leave them there for weeks to haul out the thing. And so it's it's wide, but it also smells like pony droppings, you know? And so I knew, again, what you're talking about, all the all the senses. It gave me so much that I could work with to try to explain what it was like for Churchill. So he made it out to what was in Portuguese East Africa, is now Mozambique to the um, British consulate there. And that building is still there. They have a little plaque on the wall calling it Winston's Garden. <laughs> yeah. And you also got to go to London to do archival research. Yes. Yeah, yeah, never, yeah. I did a it's ton a very of, good gig. Yeah. No complaints there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really fun. That was award-winning author Candace Millard speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell about her latest book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile, published in May 2022 by Doubleday. This interview was recorded via Zoom on February 28th of this year. And we'll present the second part of this interview next week. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>